All right, guys, this episode is a phenomenal episode that you're probably going to have to listen to a couple times, maybe three times, because Cody Burkhart of NASA is an amazing mind, very deep thoughts, not Jack Handy deep thoughts, but way, way deeper. Uh, the only regret on this episode, I was not able to use Mike Myers' quote and my late great friend David Elwood's quote, it is not rocket surgery, but we talked a lot about uh, biohacking, wearable tech, AI, where it's going, the the positives and negatives of that, uh, breathing techniques, what CrossFitters leave on the table from an elite level, uh, the, the separation of medicine and fitness and how the lines are blurring, uh, and looking up your own injuries online and informing yourself as a patient, the positives and negatives of that. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff, a lot of great content in this episode. So Looking forward to you guys learning from episode 16 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast. Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, welcome to episode 16 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast. This is kind of appropriate because 16 is my favorite number. It was my hockey number growing up, and we have a very special guest, Cody Burkhart, uh, on the podcast to celebrate the number 16, uh, and it's great to have Cody on the podcast, and Cody, thank you for making the time to be here with us on a Friday afternoon. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much, and uh, I, hopefully I'll do your, your number justice. <laughs> Well, I didn't do it much justice when I wore it, so I'm sure you'll do it more justice uh, than I did. So uh, Cody has got a, a wealth of knowledge. He's a, I, I like to, to rub elbows with people a lot smarter than me, especially on the podcast. And he is just uh, a, a, a brain with uh, a, a huge uh, knowledge on health, fitness, human performance, and he's got a, a pretty interesting background for uh, being in the health and fitness industry. You don't see many people with his educational background uh, going into the, the health and fitness industry, but I just wanted to ask what, just briefly, because you've been on a bunch of other podcasts on what you're working on with NASA, just some kind of 30,000 foot view key points. Cause if anyone wants more details, we can put links to the other podcasts in there. Cause they're two hours long explaining everything that you're going through on that. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so high level view, what we're trying to do versus what we're doing right now. So as far as what we're doing right now, uh, we have a few different systems aboard the international space station that we use to help take care of our crew. Of those three, one of them is a cyclergometer, so basically like a stationary bicycle. Uh, another is a treadmill. And then the third is the project that I'm currently project manager of, which is ARED, which stands for the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device. And that's the best way to look at it is it's a both bar and cable machine combination that allows you to try and, within most respects, mimic uh, as best as we have been able to currently supply the motions and patterns and feeling of being in free weights and cable exercises here on the ground. So that uses a, a giant cylinder and then a flywheel. And then as far as what we're trying to do, obviously the International Space Station is pretty large. 
And so we start talking about the kind of vehicles that we're going to be using for things like a gateway uh, and for the exploration towards things like Mars. Those vehicle sizes are much, much smaller. And so something like ARED that's 1,200 pounds and the size of a giant power rack are, are not optimal. And so what we're trying to do is work with motorized technologies, VR, haptic systems, the works to try and not only provide a immersive sensory experience as far as a workout, but then also supplying through sensors and different data algorithms, the ability to trend and track that user. And so the best way to look at that is you know, an artificial intelligence type trainer that is able to gather the physiological data from your day, whether it be sleep patterns, the types of activities you've done, the stress that you've been under, the environmental conditions that you're in from the vehicle itself, and then use those values along with those similar values captured from your performance during an exercise, in this case, most likely on a motorized device, uh, that we want to be an exercise experience where you're, you know, for instance, wearing a haptic suit, you've got your VR goggles on, and you're performing in a space that is entirely removed from the actual uh, localized capsule or vehicle environment and then trends those variables all together and then makes the intelligent decisions on how to explain that data to you, provide it to you, and then also how to trend and track specific circumstances that may not be as apparent to you or experts that are looking at small chunks of the data through those computer algorithms to hopefully provide a full spectrum experience uh, for our crew members. Because you know we start looking at the types of things that can happen for delays in communication, et cetera, the idea of having something that has full autonomy so that they can have control of their exercise is super important. So that's kind of the, the big picture view of what we're doing and what we're trying to do right now. So what you're saying is it's exactly like a Peloton bike. <laughs> I mean, within respects, yeah, it's taking that Peloton concept, infusing it with things like, uh, you know, the Oasis from uh, Ready Player One. It, we think that, uh, just to provide an exercise piece, right? If I put a motor underneath you, that's fine. We can do a lot of things with that. But one thing that we've really recognized, I think as a, a group of collective minds thinking about health and fitness is that you can't just look at it from a single plane. We can't just say that providing resistive exercise is going to be the most accurate and best way to supply health and condition things like strength and cardiovascular performance. There's huge impacts into those things from your neurological state as well as your perceptual state. And so the ability to try and showcase and understand the dynamics of all those simultaneously becomes extremely important. And that's one of the things that we really want to do is not just look at your resiliency from a standpoint of can you perform this workout better, but when we're trending all of these different physiological, neurological, perceptual data packets, can we understand how you perform in that three-dimensional aspect? Because it's important. Uh, the example that I, I usually like to give is crew members got to open up a hatch door. They can probably physically do it. And if they physically have the resilience, they're going to have the strength. They're going to be able to open it. But what happens if they don't have that physiological resilience? Maybe they're neurologically, cognitively uh, resilient such that they can recognize a way to use a tool to help them out. But at the same time, under both of those cases, if they're in a stressful situation and they don't perform well perceptually as far as their own negative emotions and those kinds of heightened situations under duress, uh, then they're not going to be able to do it no matter what. So trying to look at exercise and training from a multidimensional aspect is something that we see as super important. And I think that segues well into our next question on 
I read Andy Galpin's book, uh, Unplugged, and that was a very powerful thing. And Max Shank has a lot of stuff out there on joking around that people, if they forget their Fitbit, they're just going to turn around and not work out because it's not going to log them any points. Uh, and, and I think that in your aspect, as far as dealing with an unpredictable environment and a lot of unknowns, it's important to track as much data as possible in uh, as far as the readiness state, uh, the, the CNS fatigue, things like that. But I think that some people get so obsessed with this wearable tech and biohacking and quantified self-movement uh, that if they are deprived of that, they almost just go, okay, it's not worth going out and run because it's not going to count toward my weekly step total. So there's kind of that paradox of, yeah, we have all this information and a lot of people don't know what to do with it or what is important and what isn't important. So how do we kind of strike a balance between being a, a, it's my natural geekness in type A personality to like, all right, let's track as much as we can collect it like a hoarder and then just win over yesterday's self. But that's not always healthy when it's sometimes it's best to just go out and, and jog in the woods and not care how fast you're going or just enjoy the scenery, get some vitamin D. So how do we strike a balance between the, the hyper technology and then kind of connecting to our evolu evolutionary roots of just like, all right, let's wear some minimalist shoes and just go out and kind of get in the greenery and, and get a run in without any other goal other than getting some exercise and fresh air. You know, you bring up an awful lot of good points. Um, I would say that there's kind of two lenses that I view this from and they're, they're, they're very much at opposition to each other. But uh, at the same time, I think that that's kind of important realization. It's kind of the idea of uh, a, an easy decision an easy decision is only easy if the circumstances make it easy, right? Um, I gave an example to my son yesterday of, you know, something as drastic as murder, right? It's it's an easy concept to say, should you kill somebody or not? And, you know, he jumped me to the gun, which was super impressive, but he's like, well, I guess it kind of depends, daddy. He's like, it depends on if they're trying to hurt you. And that's exactly how I see something like this because there is a situation where one of these things is trying to hurt you. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, but from a standpoint of looking at data globally and using that as the metric that you move forward with, it's fine to chase the badges and the points and the fun and the unlockables that, you know, Under Armour will give you for recording your steps in their tool. That's fun. It's cool. It's a game. And I totally appreciate that it gets people to exercise uh, that it gets them to to want to try and train and do something effective with their lives at those times when they could be too stressed to want to be able to perform it. But then, you know, as you mentioned, it becomes crippling in the fact that if you put too much value on a specific type of data point, then you may find yourself lost in it. And the the easy one I can kind of give out is is heart rate. So, you know, I have a, a Garmin watch and it gives me my heart rate, but it's through an optical sensor. And optical sensors garbage. So if I'm basing all of my training on my heart rate from this garbage sensor, then how am I for sure and for certain getting the kind of actual performance data that I need to, to compare myself with. And so one of the things that we've done from some of the systems I have at NASA, just something simple is we created a heart rate gates model where we use a polar, so it's chest strapped, it's a little bit better, still not perfect, but significantly better. And we have them, you know, train within a specific heart rate zone 
on this program. And as you escape the required heart rate zone, and it kind of flashes at you to start with, with a yellow color. And then if you get further out of the bounds, it'll give you a red. And then if you spend too much time in the red, it'll actually auto shift the device. And the importance here is that what I hope people would see data for, we're not trying to create programs. And this is you know truly a philosophy that kind of stems from as much as I hate to say it, you know, the way that I see things, obviously when I'm working in the lab and I'm talking with the kids, I'm going to lean towards certain things or certain functions. And so this is not necessarily the opinion of everybody that I work with. And so I don't want that to be misconstrued, but to me, that introspective capability of trying to get data that alerts you, that allows you to understand yourself is super important. And the reason it's super important is rather than using the data as your ultimate ultimatum, where, you know, you live or die by it. If you allow it to, feeds you information so that you can say, oh, this is how I feel when my heart rate escapes, when I go anaerobic, when I'm now near my maximal heart rate, this is what it feels like. Not necessarily that the data is being used such that it says you shouldn't go here, but such that you're trying to create that introspective link between that external awareness of what's coming into you from that you know visual reception of that number. Those are really important skills. And I think they're useful because, you know, as you mentioned, going out for a run, you know, just for the hell of it, that's super important too. But if you use data successfully, if you look at it intelligently, if you train with it in a manner that you're not leaning on it to provide your justice, but you're leaning on it to provide you some increased information of yourself, that's a win. Because now when you go run by yourself out in the woods without anything, if you feel yourself getting too far out of your comfort zone from the exertion level, you can back it back down. And you might say, you know, like, why is that important? Well, <laughs> I mean, let's say it's a hot day and let's say you're going really hard on a trail and you just lose yourself in the beauty. And suddenly you start feeling, you know, heat exhaustion, fatigue. It sure would be nice to, to have some alert to those kind of symptoms beforehand. And we can use data to help that way. Inevitably though, people are starting to look at, you know, data as a one-way street where I have to listen to it. And ultimately the problem is, is that your body is way better at reading the data than you are because the data that it has, the sensors it's developed are, you know, organic. It's got actual cells that do specific jobs that handle those functions and send those communication patterns back to your brain. If you start to remap that brain pattern, that paradigm, such that you're saying that the data numbers that you're seeing on the screen are, you know, the end all be all, then you could be un desirably rewiring yourself to a lesser performance state based on the data that you're stuck to. That's uh, you know, that kind of dangerous dichotomy that exists between how it can be successfully used and how it can be deadly to you. And so a lot of this too comes with, if you're going to be using data, you know, really research the technology, make sure that you understand what you're deciding to base yourself on, because there's some great information that can be said around, for instance, things like heart rate. But again, if you're using something like a wristwatch to provide that information to you, is it the most accurate thing that you could be using in order to make those paradigm changes that you're inevitably going to make? You know, if you start changing your internal feel gauge based on what you think, oh, I apologize. It's all good. My vacuum just turned on. We're gonna have to pause that real quick. <laughs> Let me go turn it on. So apologies for the robot vacuum, considering that we're talking about technology. The, the piece here that kind of comes into play, I think that's the other side of the token to consider, you know, how you should view data. Um, I've been reading the book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. 
And I actually wrote this down today because it came up in the book and I felt like it was perfect for this question since you had given me the opportunity to look through some of the stuff we wanted to talk about. And so I wrote it down. It says, in the end, it's a simple empirical matter. If the algorithms indeed understand what's happening within you better than you understand it yourself, authority will shift to them. Of course, you might be perfectly happy ceding all authority to the algorithms and trusting them to decide things for you and the rest of the world. If so, just relax and enjoy the ride. You don't need to do anything about it. The algorithms will take care of everything. If, however, you want to retain some control over your personal existence and the future of life, you have to run faster than the algorithms, faster than Amazon and the government, and get to know yourself better than they do before they do. To run fast, don't take much baggage with you. Leave all your illusions behind. They are very heavy. That's, that's crazy. So when I got to that last part, yeah, it's super, super dope. To run fast, don't take much baggage with you. Leave all your illusions behind. They are very heavy. We have this perception and we have this new perception. We have this old perception that data is bad. We have this new perception that data is everything. Both of them are essentially illusions of the, the current conversation that you want to look at. The, the idea of the easy versus hard choice, you know, murdering is bad, but if they're trying to kill you and saving yourself, it's different. So from the standpoint of data, I think it's extremely important that you use it as a tool. Don't use it as a crutch. Don't use it as a pill, right? That does things for you. Because if you do eventually, I mean, if you like that, the algorithm will eventually have you figured out. I mean, give it 10 more years and, you know, these things will be making more decisions for you than you probably make yourself. And that's scary when you think about it. It's very scary because you can have all of that power to yourself. You have a much more complex understanding of your own interworkings. You get to see all the different facets much sooner. And so you can develop more successful patterns and more successful versions of what your reality is in order to be more effective. And if you're more effective, then that doesn't just benefit the idea of your performance in the gym. That benefits your performance everywhere that you go. Um, and I think that that's an extremely important thing for us to realize that data is a tool. Just use it sensibly and appropriately to build your awareness and hone your craft and explore your world, just like you would use a microscope or a magnifying glass or anything else. That was that was a fantastic answer. Um, and I think that we can look at this in a little different way too on before we move on to our next question. Cause I know that one's going to be a heavy and awesome one, but I think that we can also look at it with the fact that we are hardly ever non-distracted to where it's just us and our body. We always have a screen or we're always multitasking or triple multitasking to where we have a TV an iPad, a phone and a computer in our lap. And that doesn't give us any like time to be bored and be creative and just go, okay, I, I'm kind of just here being introspective and paying attention to the sensations in my body. And that's why I tell people, if you're having trouble with having pain when you run, don't run with headphones on with all this music and stuff occupying you because you can't hear your feet hit the ground. You can't pay attention when you start to feel that little shadow of pain develop in your arch three miles in. You're just going to feel it when it's screaming seven miles in because you're not paying attention to your body or your, your cadence or your foot strike. You're just paying attention to the music. 
So I think that that's an interesting parallel of we're, we're always occupied by something. So we're kind of losing our introspective ability to just kind of pay attention to our, our breath, our movement patterns, the just in general, just the, the art of movement. The way that you put it, I, I, I do appreciate when we start, I think we can create some patterns that help us when we finish. And so by that, I mean that I don't think that you always have to run without headphones, just in the same way that I don't think you are always going to run heel strike if you start practicing midfoot, forefoot, right? You're going to slowly convert. And such that now, for instance, I spent so much time obsessing and focusing on the idea of that figure four running style when I first started working with Brian, that I can't help it. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter if the dogs are pulling me and I'm listening to a book and I'm trying to push the baby stroller. I mean, you can stack up anything that you want. I will still focus and feel for that strike. I will still try and listen for the changes in the audible cues that come with scuffing as I pull my foot across the ground or if I'm landing too heavy and hard. No matter how loud something is in your head, you can still hear changes. And the, the example that I give is think about the number of times you get in your car and you have loud music on and everything else and, and your life's going and you're busy, but you can still hear that new annoying little click or that little scraping sound because it's entirely different than the pattern that you had before. Your body's super good at that as long as you practice on acting on that skill. And it's just like any skill. And I, I say that because you know, one of the things I've been getting into big time is, is the idea of skill development towards mastery. And, and part of those early pieces that I think carries over throughout the entirety of it is that obsession through the boredom, right? Is that it's boring at first to try and run without headphones. But if you just spend that initial time, you pay attention to those basic postures and positions and you generate success in navigating them, you're going to create these little warning mechanisms in your brain that go, nope, this is something that we shouldn't be feeling or shouldn't be seeing or shouldn't be hearing. And it'll allow you to then go back and do all the things that you wanted to do. I'm not the kind of person who's going to tell you that uh, I don't listen to music when I train. I do. I use it as a very cognitive driving element. You know, if I'm doing heavy lifts, I'm going to pick specific soundtracks that will ignite those kinds of areas in my brain because, you know, I spent so much time uh, in college lifting heavy to, to hard rock. So it's going to be something that engages my body to want to do that. It's a paradigm that's built in me. Uh, you don't have to ignore them. You just have to then spend some discrete time, just like any other skill and learning the basics. And so from a standpoint of trying to get yourself unconnected from devices, the only reason I, well, it's not really the only reason, it's just a very good reason to, to say it this way is because you're never going to convince people now to not be connected. They're never going to entirely unplug forever because they appreciate the benefits that come with these new things. And just like, you know, most every conversation you have, there's a moderation aspect. And now, you know, even the phones are trying to tell you exactly how long you're spending on things so you can be shocked. Um, I look at my numbers and I'm like, well, that's a high number. I don't feel bad about it though, because I know exactly what I'm using it for and how I'm using it. And I think that's the difference is if you're sitting on these devices, if you're doing these things, if you're playing the music in your head, if you're doing it for a reason that you don't understand or to try and eliminate your current problem or the focus on the current thing that you're doing, then you really need to assess the current thing that you're doing. Make sure that you really understand and appreciate it. If you're running and you feel like you have to have music to run because otherwise running is unbearable 
why are you running? Are you running because somebody told you you have, had to have cardiovascular conditioning? I mean, there's other ways to do that. There really is. But if you really like running and if you really appreciate the experience, then you should want to be able to do it well. You should want to be able to put more of yourself into it than just cramming the headphones in your ears to block out the rest of the world. I think that there's just layers to these conversations that people don't have with themselves that inevitably just resorts to them saying, you know, I'm too stressed out by the idea of thinking deeper on my own existence. So I'm just going to throw up another cat gif video and get some dopamine and call it done. Um, <laughs> but again, I have a, a very different opinion. Than I think a lot of people do. So let's segue into our next discussion. I haven't really heard any podcast with you that haven't involved breathing. And I, I always harp on this with people because I think it's a disservice to let a patient leave your office or a client leave your gym doing something that the average human being does 20 to 24,000 times a day dysfunctionally. Uh, and there's a lot of different camps that'll throw mud going, this is the right way to breathe. No, that's the right way to breathe. But uh, I just want to get your take on uh, how important breathing is to you and your daily routines and kind of what your your evolution of from like, all right, when did you start thinking about this and how that's kind of evolved? Because this is not to, to cleave the the different philosophies of what is right and what is wrong. We just realize that breathing is a, a good thing. Too much is bad. Too little is bad. Uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks thing, but that's not to create a debate. We're just trying to discuss a very vital topic to human existence because it's a fundamental skill. I, I appreciate the last chunk that you had as far as this read me in. Um, this isn't a conversation about rights, wrongs, or indifference to me. And I, I only recently saw, uh, based on some engagement with some of the other art of breath coaches, that there you know, are these new discrete camps of individuals or, you know, one of the things that's been done by uh, Brian and the group uh, is this, you know, hashtag nasal only. Uh, and then I saw another one that's hashtag not nasal, you know, just capital letter not. And it's just this, this almost warring tribes piece. And I, I find it funny and I find it silly. I find it silly too, because, you know, it, there's an attempt to vilify the idea of trying to do things like breathe through your nose um, by trying to compare it to things like COPD, which, I mean, you've probably seen patients that have come in with some of those kinds of issues. Like, that's a significant difference. Um, the idea of stressing your body by breathing through specific types of exercise sessions it, is just as much as working out in the hot or working out when it's cold outside or working out when you're stressed or when you're low on sleep. I mean, there's just different stressors that you supply. The whole point of it is, are you, once again, are you understanding why you're supplying it? For what reason? And are you then getting the kind of results that you anticipated and expect from using those things? The idea of breathing through your nose is a very important concept because I, I to say it to my son, what is, what are all the jobs of your mouth, right? Like a lot of jobs. It's, really good at talking and making noises. It's good at, you know, eating food and those kinds of things. And your nose, you don't really talk through your nose, you know, you smell through your nose. So it's got a very important concept there, but the idea of which one seems to be more situated for breathing, your nose is, and you look at a bunch of different animals and how they breathe and you see the same kind of pattern throughout them. 
it's just how it was designed. It was designed as a nice filtration system. It was designed to help create different types of back pressures inside of your own uh, lungs. So that way air could go as far as that gas exchange could go deeper into the alveoli. There's just a lot of really intelligent designs. Like if it wasn't necessary, probably wouldn't exist. So getting an understanding of how to use it is probably pretty good because you probably have a really good understanding how to breathe through your mouth because that's where most of our breathing that we see nowadays is done and we watch other people do it. And so it becomes kind of that normal thing. You also do a lot of talking. And so you're used to that exchange of how long can I talk versus not, how loud versus how soft, how much can I push out of my lungs? There's just a lot of strength in that capability. And, and a lot of that stems from using you know, that upper chest cavity to be able to push and press the lungs kind of like a billows. And it doesn't involve as much of that diaphragmatic breathing that is necessary to do things like, you know, efficiently breathe through your nose uh, under very duress activities, uh, under deep breathing conditions. And also, you know, when you move your diaphragm, you, you know, push blood and roll organs and stimulate them in positive ways. Like it's a design function that's supposed to happen. And if we're not using it successfully, then that's a problem. So from the way that I've been trying to view breathing is that, you know, it's, it's not about trying to pick pranayama versus buteko versus Wim Hof and oxygen advantage. It's analyzing what are all of them each trying to do? What systems are they trying to gather and what are they trying to provide you when you're done with it? You know, I do different breathing protocols for like uh, trying to zone myself in cognitively versus zoning myself in physically. Um, they may be, you know, like a one, two, two, one ratio where there's an inhale specific number, a, a inhale hold and exhale specific number and an exhale hold and playing with those different ratios over time. I've addressed some that work very effectively for me. And that's kind of, you know, how breathing I think evolves a little bit here is that, yeah, the, there are those general heuristics of saying that you're within one sigma, right? You're you're kind of that standard norm. And so therefore, this ratio should probably work to do something like engage parasympathetic or sympathetic arousal, depending on what you're trying to do. And it might be right, but it also might be wrong because of a lot of other physiological factors that contribute to you as an organism. You know, if you have abnormalities with how your um, body handles blood pressure, that's going to change it. If you have uh, insufficient uh, capabilities to move your diaphragm or, you know, from the standpoint of what you do from a profession, if you're bound down in a bunch of different locations such that you can't appropriately expand and contract your spine, like those are important things that will affect your ability to navigate breathing structures. And so what my capable inhale versus hold versus exhale ratio may look like from a standpoint of the tidal volume that I move versus my VO2 max could be significantly different than yours. Um, and that's something that I've been trying to play around you know, recently in the lab. And that's why I've been looking at breathing in a new light is because what I did was you know, there's minute ventilation. So minute ventilation is basically your tidal volume times your breathing frequency. And so tidal volume is that aspect of the area that you generally move with the breath. So by a standpoint of multiplying it by your frequency, you're basically seeing how much gas exchange, how much total volume of air you're moving per minute. Well, Another thing that we obviously like to look at a lot is heart rate. And we try and gauge our performance based on our heart rate. Like if your heart rate gets to this point, which is, you know, 80% or 85% of your maximal heart rate switching over to your anaerobic, that C point, uh, the exchange of energy systems, that's kind of our go-to knowledge base. Um, but then I wonder, you know, is it, is it heart rate based? And from the things I've been trying to see and look at the lab, I don't know if it is. I think that your heart rate 
is following its job to try and do some other parameter guessing. And so what I did was take the minute ventilation and divide it by the heart rate at that instantaneous moment. So what I call it is the beat ventilation. And that means how much oxygen transfer are you getting essentially per every heartbeat? And as I watched my own performance in some of these you know, very basic entities, what I did was a, a hot squat VR program. Or basically all you do is you just squat down and you stand back up. You squat down and hold it, you stand back up. And you're basically dodging these little, you know, oncoming Japanese those like Japanese game shows where it like tries to knock you over with a, a moving wall, like a hole in the wall game. Um, that's all you're doing is ducking underneath it. And comparing that value over time and looking at how my breathing frequency and tidal volume changes occurred versus my heart rate exchange, yeah, my heart rate begins to escape, but as long as I'm holding my tidal volume and being able to appropriately change my breathing frequency to ensure that I stretch that tidal volume as much as possible. And so it's not really a breathing frequency from the standpoint of, I need to breathe only five times in this minute. Like you need to do five full breaths. I'm trying to create maximum tidal volume change. If I do shallow tidal volume change, I might increase my breathing frequency because I'm trying to then locally fine tune that overall minute ventilation. And as my heart rate starts to increase, then I want to increase either my tidal volume or my breathing frequency. Well, if I increase my breathing frequency, I get some benefits to that, but quite possibly not as much as if I fill that entire space and allow that gas exchange to occur more effectively on that slow exhale. Um, and so what I've noticed is that your beat ventilation slowly goes down over time. And so my next thing is to say, well, if, if that can be a factored number, you know, zero to a hundred. What could we do if you were told here your score of your beat ventilation is a 62 and optimally you want to be at a 70 or higher? Does that suddenly change your ability to understand your breathing patterns more efficiently? And can we then pull everything within the system back into queue? Because your heart rate is trying to guess off of a bunch of other factors that it knows from its previous training situations. If it's used to just shooting through the roof as soon as your breath gets shallow and you switch over to mouth breathing, because it knows you're now in, you know, kind of gut check survival mode and you're going for, uh, carbohydrates as opposed to sorry, glycogen, as opposed to trying to go through oxygen, that paradigm might be already built. So how can we make sure that we re-navigate new systems? Uh, a simple visualization of a new value that you've never seen before might be enough to do that. That's again, how data could be used as a tool. Uh, so in my own personal breathing strategies, then I don't try and look at the problem as solved or as somebody's already come up with the ideas. I'm trying to understand what each of those ideas benefits and how it benefits it. You know, some of these methods are designed more for teaching you the actual dynamics of breath on how to be able to slowly transition between inhalations and exhalations, how to use the diaphragm. Some of them are designed on stressing the body to get it to be used to higher levels of CO2 or to be able to make more efficient uh, transfer from a bore effect standpoint of that CO2 oxygen transfer over the cell. All of them have different methodologies. You know, even so much as to say some of them aren't even really designed to work towards changing your ability to move air, but they're now being designed towards changing your state. This is going to help calm you down. This is going to help excite you. There's all of these layers over this one thing. So suddenly the question becomes, you know, if squats were seen as being as important as they are from a standpoint of hormone release points, uh, general mobilization of uh, lower extremities, stabilization of the body and spine, quarter extremity motions, like they have all these benefits as well. We love squats. Well, why don't we love breathing? 
like we we love running and exercise and eating well why don't we love breathing as much why don't people talk about it as much when it is tied to so many things in your body that are being subconsciously defined and often even consciously defined by you that it's so important um and that's the kind of way i've been trying to visualize it is let me make sure that when i do the things that i do when i do my breathing in the cold when i do my breathing during my workout when i choose to do nasal only and why i'm doing it that i know what i'm trying to attempt to find in myself uh the most recent example is that i did diane uh, my wife and i have been doing a strength program she wanted to do some strength after having uh, the little one and so i brought out some of my old athlete self-programming we've been moving through it and i got to test that week and it was diane time and previous best was a 249 i was like no i'm, I'm not going to get anywhere close to that but i want to see how these changes to my breathing structure have allowed me to handle something like a Diane when I'm only breathing through my nose. Can I appropriately manage that and still feel good when I'm done? Because it's, it's different. If I feel like shit, if I feel like I starve myself of oxygen by raising my CO2 levels through the roof, that's not a benefit. I don't win that. If I feel like garbage afterwards, I'm losing that game. And I did it in 229, as fast as I've ever done it. And when I got done, I didn't feel shitty. I didn't feel shitty at all. I felt great. I wasn't laying on the ground like I'm used to from like my best friend times where I know for a fact my mouth comes open from the beginning and I'm burning that, that fuel. So it started to make me, again, reconsider some of the things that I know. If I thought that you had to breathe through your mouth to be explosive, maybe I misunderstood explosive. Maybe I was ignoring power for longevity and sustainability and using less of my skeletal tissues and slow switch muscles as opposed to my fast switch muscles in those various exercises. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that could have gone differently that I may have done in the past that I could exchange and change. And it makes me you know, wonder how I would be from a performance standpoint if I changed it sooner. And that's not to say that, again, I don't use mouth breathing. I do. There's sometimes when things get bad and my mouth comes open because I can't keep up with the demand of that gas exchange and I'm attempting to get back there. Don't say that you're never going to breathe through your mouth again, but at the same time, don't just breathe through your mouth and say it's because my body decided to do this. You know, Ever since I trained my body to be able to breathe through my nose again, to go through my workouts that way, to go through my day that way, to sleep that way, I don't snore anymore. I mean, I used to be a notorious snore. Don't snore anymore. My sleep feels 10 times better, which is important because I basically don't get enough even for most human beings to even consider fair. Um, and I, I don't feel bad throughout the day. I, I don't feel like I'm out of breath as often as I was from doing certain things. And I catch myself just like that conversation I'm running. I catch myself adjusting it all the time. I'm thinking about it consistently. And so suddenly, just like I would want to do with my posture, right? If you want somebody to have good posture, you want to get them to the point where they think about it consistently. So they'll adjust it when their body goes into those kind of subconscious routines that get lazy. And that's how you create sustainable posture and sustainable health from that. You want somebody to think about breathing. It's not to say that you should always go, you know, I got to breathe through my nose. But instead, you got to go, what is my breathing doing right now? Why is it doing that? How should I be changing it? Is it optimal for its current condition? Just like, is my position currently optimal for this lift? Is my technique currently optimal for this exercise? Like all of those things are super important conversations to have with yourself. And my breathing practices are similar to yours, uh, just based on kind of listening. Cause I know what the characteristics of all the different, 
uh, kinds of breathing are without you naming them. Uh, I had to do the Wim Hof uh, series just to remove the panic mode for like removing that gas reflex because I had exercise induced asthma as a kid uh, and I had walking pneumonia for a year and a half. So for a year and a half, I got really good abs because I would cough until I would vomit. Uh, and that's not great when you play hockey in a enclosed but non-insulated rink in Wisconsin. So cold, dry air plus walking pneumonia for a year and a half, uh, plus exercise-induced asthma. Uh, if you x-ray my lungs now, it looks like I have TB uh, or I've had TB in the past. So I had a, like a very uh, panicked context of being out of air, even if I knew I was on a table and I could take a breath. So I had to kind of decondition and remove that threat in my brain of like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Uh, and, and I had to really condition myself with the Wim Hof method to just go, okay, you don't need air. Relax your soft palate. Relax your windpipe. You're not going to die. And then I could really get into some of the, the more nasal strategies under exercise, but I physically could not do that until I deconditioned my brain and got it out of run from the tiger mode uh, with some of the Wim Hof stuff, just going, okay, I, I'm going to be okay. I can hold my breath for this long and I can breathe through my nose for this long, but I just had to really condition my system to not just freak out from having that kind of context with the asthma and the pneumonia, just not being able to breathe. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a perfect example of using, first of all, I, that sounds like a terrible way to have gone through things. And I'm sorry that you had to feel that way, but it's the exact example of why you want to look at a method for what it's trying to provide, right? If you know that you have a certain failure point in your ability to expand anything, you, you want to attack that weakness and you want to get through that weakness so that you can then try and uncover the other layers. If you want to become you know, a very great calligraphist, if you can't handle writing in cursive, you know, start there. Don't try and start all the way down at uh, you know, these special texts and other languages and, and other you know, old-fashioned English. You have to really focus on those initial steps to get good at things, how to hold a pencil in your hand, how to put pencil to paper, how to make sure you don't smudge it as you come across. Um, and, and that's what I wish more people would do from the breathing standpoint, instead of getting roped around the idea that they saw somebody say they're doing nasal only. So they have to go do every single workout nasal only. Like <laughs> that's just not, that's not what this is. What it is is trying to just improve your efficiency of your system and try and correct some of the, you know, like you had mentioned, it was ingrained in you from your youth. It's stuck in you. Your brain knows certain things and certain limitations because it's tired of having to feel certain ways. And if you're not willing to open up out of that and try and change those, you know, kind of go-to subconscious routines, you're going to be stuck with them for the rest of your life. And that doesn't sound very fun. So you mentioned Diane, and that's a that's a pretty well-known CrossFit workout. And I know you've worked with some really high-level CrossFitters in the past, and that's how we got to meet. Uh, so what is the most common thing that you see that they leave on the table, whether it be training, diet, sleep, recovery, et cetera, just anything uh, – that you see that is kind of a common thread going, all right, you're very genetically gifted. 
you work hard, you have a huge engine, uh, you're doing a lot of things right, but is there kind of a, a commonality of things that these uh, high-level CrossFitters, things that they could do better that they don't? I think that, uh, and I, I thought about this one very intentionally um, because it is one of those things where, shoot, nowadays when you watch not just elite level crossfitters, but level athletes in general and the kinds of things that are available to them and the kinds of programs and institutes they're getting set up to help sustain their performance and the kinds of things that their coaches are getting into, they do train intelligently. They, they do make sure that they have sleep every night. They're making sure that they have their meals and nutrition locked down. They're making sure to have recovery devices and plans set up and doing flexibility and stretching and training. And you know, now they're adding breathing and all those kinds of things into their workloads. Like they're doing a really good job at having all the tools in line. The, and, and they have the will too, right? They have the desire. They know why they're doing this. For the most part, I would say some of them don't at the center core of themselves know entirely why they're chasing what they're chasing, but they have this, you know, mindset training that they've been going through and trying to envision themselves. A lot of them do meditation. Some of them get mindset coaches. You know, I've was on Tom Foxy's podcast and, and he does a good job at those kinds of certifications and sees a lot of success with the types of athletes that come into those conversations with, you know, how your headspace works. Like it's such a complete program. And so I was struggling like, man, you know, I guess which one is the, the least link? And I could say, well, maybe they could sleep better. And I'm like, well, maybe that's just me saying it about myself. But ultimately what I, I stumbled on is people don't actually understand how they work. So I know certain things about how an engine works based on my engineering background. There are certain parts of it that I know how they work and what they do and what they're for that somebody else might not know. Do I know every single system underneath, uh, you know, the car that I currently drive? Absolutely not. And I probably should be smarter about it. And the reason I should be smarter about it is if it ever breaks down and I want to know how to get it fixed or when it needs to be fixed, or if it's a big deal, knowing the system is going to help me. And I don't think that high level CrossFitters, high level athletes in general really understand actually what's happening what things are going on inside their body, how the basic systems work. You know, they, they're used to telling somebody that, oh, you know, it's your lactic acid that gets too high and therefore it kills you out. Like, that's just wrong. You took somebody's advice because you heard it in a book and, and that's not how, you know, your lactic acid works at all. It's, it's the hydrogen ions themselves that cause the problem. It's increases in CO2. It's a lot of other different things. And lactic acid is instead an energy system that splits into two pyruvate molecules. Like there's something else there. And so suddenly you have these individuals who are used to touting around the things that they're doing and why they're doing them. You know, a good one that comes up a lot with you know, this hot, cold stuff, since we're talking about Wim Hof and the breathing pieces, increasing mitochondrial density. And everyone's like, yeah, it's a powerhouse in my cell. Okay. So do you know what that means? Like, do you understand what's actually happening with that cell? And it's not meant to, to come off as, as being a jerk about it. It's just an honest question. Do you understand how those systems work? Do you understand that it produces your ATP, that it uses specific proteins and molecules, ingests them, works them through, and then kicks them back out so that they can bond to ATP synthase and produce some water when it hits oxygen? Do you understand that those abilities of having a higher density of those types of cells within a cell helps expand its capabilities, allows it to do more and be more effective and higher performing at a lower cost of input energy. And then do you understand all the different ways that you can do that? Essentially, if a cell demands more energy, 
it's going to increase mitochondrial density. So if you're training on it, if you're strength and resistant training on it, it might say, hey, you know, I need to be able to handle more load over more time because these muscle cells need a lot more. So cool, I'm going to increase my density. But the same thing can be true of if I get you really cold. If I get you really cold and then we start to move from, you know, shivering thermogenesis into non-shivering thermogenesis, I'm going to start making chemical changes. I'm saying that instead of having to shake my whole body and burn a whole bunch of energy from a whole lot of areas and be super inefficient, let me start to work on it chemically so I can increase that mitochondrial density, allow me to have more energy to heat myself up since that's what it's producing, heat, and be able to then elevate myself back up to a better body temperature. So that's just one of those benefits of cold pieces. And suddenly that mitochondrial density in those cells is beneficial for use later. So if I increase the mitochondrial density in your peripheries through your arms and legs, as they draw up all that blood into your core, and then I pump it out with fresh stuff to heal it, suddenly now you've got more energy dense muscle structures and more energy dense total systems under the places that you would use for your strength training or your lifting or your running or your moving or your being. And it's this kind of relationship that I think that they have missed and that they ignore. And it's not because they choose to ignore it because they don't want to hear it. It's because they're used to being able to receive information in a day and age like now where, you know, we trust it, but what do we trust? Do we know who we're getting it from? Do we know where they got it from? Have we asked those honest questions and tested it within ourselves? Just because somebody says this recovery plan works for you and here's the 12 things we're going to do to change it. You shouldn't be doing it 12 at once. You should be doing one at a time. You know, if you want to add cold therapy, you want to add breathing and you want to add nutrition into your landscape, don't do them all at once. Do one at a time. Figure out what helps you the most, how your body responds to it. Is it something that's providing you the types of ends and means that you want to have? Instead of just assuming that you have to do everything under the sun every single day, that's just not optimal because eventually you're going to get into a stressor situation just because you're like, ah, panic. I have to get all this training in and I don't have enough time because, you know, lo and behold, I got a flat tire and suddenly a flat tire becomes like the end of the world. And that's not just of CrossFitters or of elite level athletes. That's us in our daily lives. If we don't build any bandwidth in there, you know, inevitably any type of small nuisance becomes an epic meltdown. And that's what I think happens to a lot of these athletes is suddenly a small nuisance pops up and they don't think about it at first because they're like, no, I'm just going to trust the plan. Things are going well, you know, I'm fine. And then suddenly that small nuisance becomes, you know, a big pain and it's starting to hurt and affect their performance. And by that time, they're so stressed that they can't figure out how they're going to fit the rest of their training in that what is just something that could have been fixed with a little bit of changes to their algorithm, as it were, and how they decided to train themselves could have prevented themselves from even being down that path. Uh, and so I think that athletes should be choosing to get smarter. They should be choosing to try and do the research to understand what is chemically happening under the hood. What is neurologically happening under the hood? Do they understand how their brain works, how it communicates information, how it builds and changes visual inputs into, you know, concepts and ideas. Do we understand how our senses supply information and which senses are more important than others and how they operate from a standpoint of warning signals from a breathing standpoint, do I understand what my CO2 versus O2 tolerance capabilities mean? Because each of them have their own specific function. Um, and, and so that's why I wish athletes would try and do a little bit more is rather than just take it as face value and say, you know, I am doing everything. I am going to bed early. I am having somebody make my food. I am having somebody who's intelligent, write my programming. They need to go and try and really understand what it means to, 
to understand the world. Uh, the quote I would give to, to summarize all of it is from Carl Sagan, and I'm loosely quoting it here, but basically, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you first have to make the universe. If you don't understand the universe, then you don't really understand the constituents of making your apple pie from scratch. So it behooves you to try and understand the universe, to try and understand the universe within yourself if you really want to understand how you're applying the different techniques and tools that you use in your training. And I think that that point, uh, it's like you were peeking ahead in the questions. Uh, it's, a, it's a great <laughs> segue into, uh, I kind of have to live in both worlds, the the medical world and the fitness world. And it seems like they used to be these very separate entities like, okay, this is the scope of practice and the knowledge base of a a physician. And this is the scope of practice and the knowledge base of a personal trainer or someone in the fitness industry. And not all of it was good advice across the board. I've seen a lot of doctors that are not in shape to give any fitness-based advice, like someone who is morbidly obese saying that squats are bad for your knees, deadlifts will hurt your back, uh, running's bad for your knees, um, and just all these general blanket concepts. But it seems like more and more, especially in the sports medicine and rehab world, uh, you you kind of have to look look the part and walk the walk and kind of be a hybrid, almost like a Charlie Weingroff, like training equals rehab, rehab equals training in kind of, you, you got to know what your patients are doing and understand the verbiage and the tech in uh, everything. And it's also a responsibility of the patient to go, okay, I'm an active participant in my care. So I have to kind of understand what's going on. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, I'm going to teach you more about your back than you're really going to want to know. But that's to your point And the last question, I want to educate people on what the multifidi do and what the psoas actually does and what their diaphragm does and why their neck's always tight when they're stressed. It's like your stress doesn't live in your right upper trap. You shallow breathe when you're stressed. You're <laughs> at a deadline at work and you're in a bad posture. Yes. Like stress doesn't have mass. You can't put it in a bucket and carry it around. This is physiological and biomechanical stress, not like, oh, it's not just like emotional stress camped out in your chakra and your right trap. Uh, I'm trying to dispel these myths and just give people good concrete information because I see that as a weakness uh, in medicine in general is doctor, it means teacher, and you should be educating people. And I think that the, the lines between the medical and the fitness world are blurring. So how do you foresee the future? Because you're, I, I think that eventually people are going to take you up on your suggestion to, to learn. And I think I'm excited because in general, I'm on top of my stuff and that's going to hold the people accountable in the medical world that haven't really dusted off a physiological textbook or an anatomical textbook in a while. They're going to look really dumb if they have some, someone that you train that is up on the, the physiology and they understand their body and the doctor doesn't. No, it's, it's a super important point to say that you need to be at the top of your game when it comes to today's landscape. Um, I think that it, there's kind of two parts to that as well in that right now, that's extremely important because everyone is reaching a, an age of information uh, more 
accessible information where they can immediately, you know, look at what they want to see and understand what they the problem might be. You know, if I feel like I have a pinch point in my neck, I can Google well, what causes pain there, kind of thing. By having that, you expect the other person to have the accessibility, that same kind of information as quickly, if not already inherent in them, because that is their expertise. And that's why you're coming to them. Um, you know, we're, we've gotten used to coming to businesses for a specific needs thing. We go to, you know, Uber for our car drive. We go to Starbucks for our coffee. Like we don't go to Starbucks necessarily for, you know, uh, our muffins, although some people do. I'm not going to say that they don't, but there's specific reasons that we go to specific places. And so we've gotten used to this mentality of getting exactly what we need at the place that we go to. Um, and two, if you're going to a sports medicine specific clinic or rehab facility, you're having identified yourself, right? You've picked your bucket and you say, I am a sports enthusiast. Therefore, that's why I'm going to you as opposed to you know, the rehabilitation clinic down the street that doesn't say sports in front of their name. Um, that piece, I think, becomes almost kind of a requirement too from the salesmanship of being in that space. Like if you're it used to be that if you're a trainer and, and overweight and didn't look like you lifted, it was okay because you still had information and those people were less likely to be intimidated by your presence and therefore feel comfortable training at the level they were. But now they're used to seeing these fitness experts on TV who are, you know, in great shape. And so they have this new expectation. And so you have to match that net, you know, that marketing strategy of saying, I'm going to be the thing that you want me to be so that you'll come to me for more business. Um, that's kind of the sad, I would say, shell that's going on with respect to why you have to be more fit within the position. Now, as far as why you have to be more intelligent, and again, that information piece, those I think are, are logical needs for now. Um, but what happens when the, the algorithms get better? And what happens when an online diagnostic report is able to more correctly identify what's going on based on more people having gone through, you know, a, a ACL recovery or ACL damage and have these types of, you know, symptoms and these types of positional issues and these types of compensations and these types of issues with, uh, you know, force distribution from a shoe that now sees how much force you apply every step that you walk. Like these things are not crazy. They are literally about to happen. And so if those things are going to be in existence, then the only way to truly curve it from a standpoint of being a professional in that space is to make sure that you're as knowledgeable in that game. You know, it becomes just like the athlete. If this is your space, if this is your activity, if this is your thing, you need to become not just a master in the thing that you're doing, but you need to try and develop as much mastery as possible in all the things that are connected and surrounding it. Because that's the only way that you're going to most effectively communicate your craft to another person. And if a computer algorithm can communicate that craft more effectively, then you're just a tool. And you're just this thing that comes in and does manipulations based on what pops out of the system. And you're not actually trying to understand that creative nature that might be smarter than the algorithm, especially at the beginning, right? Like it's going to start making recommendations, but you might have seen this kind of injury with this specific person and catch a small nuance in their motion pattern that tells you that it's not the ankle that's causing the problem, but it's the reverse and switching the system all the way up to the neck. And that's where their hip malfunctions are coming from. So even though the system wants to say it's the ankle, you recognize that it's from something entirely different from how that T-spine, C-spine interact. And like you mentioned, because you have shortness of breath, because you're always stressed in your meetings and therefore you hunch over at your desk with your kyphotic spine. And that's exactly what's causing the problem. Um, 
those important relationships of understanding those dynamics, you, you have to, to try and think ahead as to how you might beat a computer. And the reason that you want to think ahead of that function is because the world is, is showcasing what the fastest communication method has made available. TV made it available for you to see more fitness people who are fit and more rehabilitation specialists who are fit. Therefore, you have a new expectation. You've seen something different than what you've seen only at your 24-hour fitness because that's the only exposure you had to. Now that you have the ability to read information on news articles and catch up-to-date information from research papers or when your iPhone decides to say, hey, they found a new organ in the human body, right? Like suddenly you're an expert on it because you can pull it up and you can read it and you can look at it. And therefore everyone else should be at that same level. If you're going to ask somebody in the fitness and health industry what to do, they should know all that information because you see it as, well, I knew it. It came right to my phone. It's instantaneous, just like the TV was before that. And so when we start having these algorithms that predict before you've even understood that you're about to be there to predict it. That's the kind of space that you have to get into as a practitioner. You have to start saying, I need to be a doctor. I need to be a physical therapist. I need to be you know, a, a neurologist at the same time. And then I have to sew that in with thinking about how to be an athlete. Like You have to live in these other people's shoes. The idea of being able to consider everyone's opinion without accepting it, but at least to experience it so that you can have more information that's going to create this adoptive adaptive um, philosophy of how you're going to execute on your craft that a computer system won't understand that it won't be able to keep up with um, and so i know that's kind of a little bit farther than the question that you asked but i, I just feel like while you are seeing these changes the changes are following technology like everything follows whatever communicates fastest. And as soon as we move away from cell phones into something like glasses that show overlaid XR and augmented reality and allow us to see through the doors of our car outside of itself and allow us to see ads that pop up as we walk past stores that you know are auto-generated through a VR overlay, like when that comes, suddenly they're going to be in your office looking at you with their glasses on as it you know pulls up all your records on what you got in college and what your continuing education is and what your five most recent Facebook posts were. Like they're going to know everything about you. Um, and while that seems again sci-fi and predicting, there is some validity to that in the fact that they can Google you right now. They can look you up, see the things that you're talking about. See the things that you're interested in. You know, people who engage with me have the ability to look at my Instagram. They have the ability to look at my LinkedIn. They have the ability to know more about me than I know about them if I'm not willing to then do the same thing back. And so there just needs to become this new relationship between yourself and your craft, whether it be, you know, trying to be a physical therapist or whether it be try to, trying to be a doctor or a dentist or, you know, an engineer. You need to really reach into the bucket of trying to understand where somebody's coming from because information is way more readily available to do that. And I, I think that when I, when I looked at your speech on mastery, that, that book by Robert Greene is one that I read every year and reread every year uh, because it's one of my favorites. And the, the big takeaway on that that I got out of is that people that achieve mastery in a skill, they almost have a screw loose to where they don't really let something slide they're not they're not satisfied with being confused and it'll keep them up at night if they can't figure out a problem and i think that that's one of the only things that make me makes me like 
somewhat good at my job is if I don't know the answer to something, I'm going to write it down and I have a research list and I have Google alerts on Google Scholar for the 12 most common conditions that I see. So I get five emails a day for this article came out on that. This article came out on that. And you just have to have an almost unhealthy obsession with fixing stuff or being good at your craft to be at the top of your game to fight the computer because uh, you can't really have those non-specific effects like a connection with a provider in person on uh, someone actually examining you, touching you, palpating the area, like reassuring you that they care and that they're going to educate you. That's hard to do via teleconference and over a computer. So I think that as long as you are genuinely interested in being good at your job as a doctor or as a trainer, and that you have genuine values of improving people's quality of life and just not really worried about your pocketbook and more about your patient or your client. I think that that's the bottom line because uh, a teleconference will go away, but I have several patients right now that they don't really have anywhere else to go. And I've bought $600 worth of books to learn how to fix them. And I'm kind of the high pressure situation. Like they don't really have anyone else to fix them because everyone else has given up. So it's like, all right, this is a chance for me to learn and get better and kind of go at my obsessive Sherlock Holmes-ish mastery of this. I applaud you for that. Uh, I, I just don't see people that do it as often anymore. Um, and those who do are rewarded for it, in my opinion. And the reason that you're rewarded for it is because, and shit, Yelp exists, right? Google reviews exist there is suddenly an ability for everyone to say exactly everything they feel about you. And if you're putting all of this extra time, all this extra investment in it, and you're trying to ask yourself, you know, well, everyone says it's not about the money, but I still need to be able to sustain and keep a business alive. Fact is you'll keep a business alive if you do exactly the service that everyone expects you to provide and more, right? If you are the best of what you do, people now have the ability to reach out to you. It wasn't like before where, you know, you only had two town doctors and the ability to get anyone else's opinion was, you know, days worth of travel for somebody to get out there to alert them and then days worth to come back. Like that's not the case. You can drive an extra 15 miles out of your way to go get the better service, to go get the person who's put more into their work and into their craft than the other person. Um, and so now we have created this ease of transport that is increased uh, accessibility for people. Granted, as you're mentioning, you know, some of that ease of transport has come at the cost of digital references. And you just kind of have to accept that. You have to accept that certain things are going to be handled by those systems. And rather than trying to say that they're bad, you know, understand where they're weak, understand where you can be stronger, understand where you can provide a service that that service doesn't provide. It's Rather than thinking about it like it's the replacement, you know, it's just, it's competition as it were. And in this case, you don't have to feel unfair about this competition as though you're trying to topple somebody else. You know, you're using it more of as a, a rabbit to chase, you know, it's trying to go as fast and as hard as it can. And companies are trying to be able to capture those dollars in the market. And for you, if it's about your passion for your craft, you know, don't look at it as it's something that's coming as a sponge to suck up the money, but instead look at it as something that's coming to challenge you, you know, get yourself in the arena, get dusty and bloody 
and try and figure out what it is that you really want to communicate to the world. Because, you know, tapping into the conversations on mastery and the pieces that I've done recently, I really do believe that you are trying to communicate your human condition through the things that are your craft. So why would you want to do that in any other inefficient and ineffective way, unless you don't care about saying what you think about the world and what you think about existence, what do you think about that human condition? If you don't want to share it, that's fine. You don't have to. Again, as that quote went from earlier, the algorithms will take care of it for you. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. But if you want to have any type of drive in this, if you want to have any type of ownership in this, then, you know, let go of those illusions because as he says, they're heavy. Well, is there anything else you'd like to cover, man? I mean, we we covered a lot of great stuff. This is gonna this is gonna be a great representation of number sixteen for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Uh, I I think that the conversation happens as it needs to happen at the times that they need to happen, and I don't feel that any of the information is you know by any means going to be the final thing that either one of us necessarily agree with in our lives. And so I, I, I say that for people who listen, you know, when you come up with ideas, you play with them. And some of these ideas that we've talked about, you know, the way that I'm speaking about them are the first time I've ever spoken about them that way, because, you know, the moment catches you and you throw out a reference and you try and play with it and work through it in your mind. Thinking is a hard game. It takes time. Um, and in a world where your time is being sucked up by cat gifts and, you know, memes and Instagram it's hard to spend the actual time to think, to allow yourself to pause your TED talk and actually look up what the word that was just said is so that you understand and appreciate more what's being said to you and, and dive down what mitochondria are when you heard about it in this podcast, like get yourself messy and, and provide that opportunity to think hard so that you can have ideas of, and, and those words in your mind. And then when you hear information from somebody like, you know, you or me or anyone they listen to, don't take it as the only thing. I'm not trying to tell you that this is all the right answers. I'm not trying to tell you that it's always going to work for you. You know, I believe in this N equals one concept of once you hear information or strategies or skills or tools that seem effective for you, try them out. If they work, then embrace them. If they don't, get rid of them. You don't have to agree with every single point that was mentioned here. You don't have to agree with every single context. Like, I specifically say this from the breathing standpoint, you know, if you don't believe in the breathing stuff, don't let that take you away from the concept of these other conversations that we've had. Don't let it remove you from understanding what big data is going to do as far as changing the way that we interact with the world. Don't let it change the way you might reconsider how you look at, you know, the physiological sensor information of your Fitbit and how you might use it to introspectively change. Like don't close yourself off because one thing doesn't ring true with your existence. Like, I am not somebody who is hell-bent on trying to say that every single one of my ideas is entirely linked together. I think that it's at some deeper core of that universal structure they are, but it may not be apparent on the surface because there are still idea wars that go on in my mind just as much as anyone else's, where we choose to exchange things with what we thought we knew with what we now know. And as you said with those Google Scholar alerts, right? New information comes all the time. Tomorrow, a post could come up that basically says like, you should never breathe through your nose and this is how it, you know, it totally kills you. And, and it might change everything. We don't know. And so be flexible with it. Be transparent with how you engage these pieces of information and agile with the way that you apply them. 
You can just drop the mic after that, man. That was awesome. <laughs> so where can people learn more about you uh, as far as social media, what projects you're working on, things like that? Uh, so I uh, have an Instagram handle and my Twitter's the same. They're attached together. Uh, I mostly post on my Instagram. It's at nerd reinvented. Um, I used to have a bunch of online videos and those kinds of things, but we've since taken them down. I'm trying to put together some stuff. There's, uh, you know, I think you've referenced it. There's a video out of a conversation they gave to the incoming freshman students at University of Colorado this year on mastery. Uh, I'm going to try and create some more digital content. I basically have a bunch of it saved on my computer. And it's just one of those things where I want to dust it off. I want to work through it. I want to chew through it five, six, seven times before I post it because it's different than the way I used to produce information. I used to just try and rip it out and just deliver it and let the world kind of decide. Uh, and now I want to make sure that I really have invested myself in what I'm doing and, and what I'm saying and what I'm putting out. So I don't post a ton that often, but it definitely comes with significant thought beforehand. Um, and, you know, by any means, reach out to me. You can email me. Um, my personal email is Cody, C-O-D-Y dot Burkhart, B-U-R-K-H-A-R-T at gmail.com. Uh, and if I don't immediately respond, you know, ping me back or give me some time. It's uh, not intentional. But uh, yeah, I think there's some good ways you can get a hold of me. Excellent, man. Well, thank you very much for making the time. Uh, this was a monster of a podcast, and I hope to revisit some of these concepts and, and bounce some other ideas off of you in a part two coming up here, maybe shoot for six, eight months out. Yeah, sounds great to me. All right, man. Thank you, and uh, enjoy your weekend. Uh, thank you too, sir. I really appreciate it.